Hello, Bulak listeners. We are taking a bit of a break this summer, but in the meantime, we're choosing some of our favorite older episodes from our back catalog to rerun for you. This one is about the Moroccan novelist Dries Schreiby's famous breakout angry young man novel, The Simple Past. Um, It was described as a bomb in North African literature when it was published in 1954, and it is still explosive today. If you haven't read this novel, we highly recommend it. Of the greatest interest what you have told me about growing up as a child in Morocco, in earlier times, it's no matter that a counterfeiter, all counterfeiters, Lucien, Chicho, Roche, and the nasal-voiced priest, every one of them saw me from his own perspective. Me? I'm a beefsteak passed from one hand to the other, weighed, examined, sniffed at, and hangled over. Ho! A beefsteak! Then it's my turn to see things from the perspective of my ferocity. Fabulous fees, the principle of principal stockholder, cosmopolitanism, a childhood in Morocco. Who do you think you're talking to? I'm not the handle of a frying pan. Let's get to the core of the matter. You do not accept me. I cannot be your equal because that is your secret fear, that I become your equal and that I come to demand my place in the sun. Oh, yes. I know there are those who rubbed their hands with joy when I rebelled and when I rejected the world of the Orient. That is not all, I said. Move over. I'm going to sit down, too. How's that? How's that? Did you think that I was going to consider my revolt a good conduct mark on my report card, that I should store away that energy without giving it form or utilizing it, that I should be static, Take a post as superintendent for rights of entry or secretary interpreter, a kind of no man's land. So that was a passage from the Moroccan novelist Dries Scheibe's The Simple Past, uh, read to you by Marcia Lynx-Qualey. This is Ursula Lindsay, and uh, this is episode 43 of the Bulak podcast, which we're going to be dedicating uh, pretty much entirely to this novel by Scheibe. Um, which was uh, published uh, originally in 1954 and just brought out again by the New York Review of Books imprint. Um, And what you heard there was the voice of its very angry young protagonist, uh, Dries Ferdi, um, Schreiber's alter ego, Uh, one of the sort of great, uh, I would say, post-colonial angry young men in North African literature uh, who narrates a story of revolt and, like he says, also a story of being trapped in no man's land between uh, traditional and uh, very stifling patriarchal culture. Uh, His conflict is mostly with his father and, on the other hand, being Western-educated, French-educated, having these new social and political and personal aspirations. But like he says, sort of only being encouraged so far to, to move towards them. Um, so it's a, it's a really fascinating work. Um, 
and uh, and it's exciting. I read it a long time ago, but it's exciting to read yes, it again. It's, so it's just been re-released uh, from NYRB Classics. The same translation, but with a new introduction and and uh, uh, a new sort of jacket and all that. Um, so uh, Dries Schreiber has. Yeah, it was. Um, well, sorry, I should I should have said. Um, sorry, I should have said it was translated originally in 1990 by Hugh Harder. Right, and this is still Hugh's translation, just with a new introduction. Um, so, although Dries Schreiber has said in a number of different interviews and many times that this is not an autobiographical work nor an autobiographical novel. Um, he was born in 1926 in Najdida, and he, like uh, Dries, the Dries of the novel, which uh, he is at, at the very least shared his name with, uh, was also the son uh, of a tea trader. And uh, he sort of describes, it, it's funny because he describes himself in a 1992 interview with El Mundo as having left a very well-off environment with a great Arab culture and traveled a normally uh, a reverse path that I chose to be poor. So he left um, Morocco in where he had a, a, a middle-class upbringing with as, or upper-middle-class upbringing as son of a tea trader and went to study in, in France, which uh, is where he, he started writing at age 26 or 27 um, or this is how he tells the story. But certainly in the early 1950s in France is when he wrote this first work, The Simple Past. And this was his first novel. Um, in the introduction, it, it's interesting because it describes him as traveling around and having spent two years living in Israel under a Jewish pseudonym, teaching himself how to write fiction. And this was so kind of startling to me, especially considering um, the anti-Semitism given voice to uh, from the characters in the novel that I tried to research when exactly was this? What year? What years was this? When when did he live in Israel under a, a pseudonym? Um, and nearest I could find out, uh, there's an academic named Kassim Basfau who wrote it, it could have been two years, it could have been two months, it could have been three weeks, or it could have been fifteen days. He told the story differently many times. So um, I'm not entirely sure. He definitely traveled around, ended up mostly writing in France. This, his first novel, he described it in interviews as a bomb. Um, uh, most, you know, people writing about it describe it hit Morocco like a bomb. It was an explosive debut. It was as if an explosion had gone off. It's um, something I read over and over how, uh, shocking this novel was to readers at the time. He followed it up with another novel where he returns to, to go to his father's funeral, although in he wrote that after not going back for his father's funeral in 1957. Um, so it was banned at the time. It was released during the anti-colonial struggle. So it, it came into already a very fraught environment where people read it. I, I think many people read it kind of superficially at getting out of it, either what they wanted or seeing in it what they hated. So um, there were apparently French readers at the time who saw this as a vindication of colonial rule. Oh, obviously, from this book, you can tell that the Moroccans cannot rule themselves. Um, 
And, 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 you know, there were of course people who were, uh, startled and offended by, by the very visceral portrayals of, uh, different aspects of Moroccan life. So it was, uh, banned. Uh, it's interesting because it it was sort of unbanned in two stages. It was, uh, you know, people have, I think, embraced and rejected this novel periodically or in in the uh, 60s and 70s. Um, It was rehabilitated in in the magazine Souffle in 1967. And by, by rehabilitated, I think, you know, people writing about it saying, no, this is not the great novel explaining why why French, we needed to be ruled by the French. This is an entirely different novel. It's an, uh, and it's an important and beautiful novel. And then it was unbanned in 1977. Um, although interestingly, there are two uh, dedications in this, um, in this edition, if I can flip to it really fast. Okay, 1954... At that time, there was hope and revolt, D.C. And then 1977, to Hassan and the other brave leaders of the Arab world, is there nothing more than revolt, also D.C.? Um, well, so he, because between the time, so it was published as Morocco was about to gain independence, and then by the time it was uncensored, as you say, in 1977, Morocco had become an independent state, but had already had this very vicious fight between leftist, nationalist and progressive forces and the Moroccan monarchy and had and the Moroccan monarchy had more or less won by 77 by by beginning uh, the years of lead, which were an incredibly repressive period that involved um the i mean mass trials and also you know the violent putting down of student protests and public protests and and the introduction of a police state that disappeared people and tortured people um so right so when he says is all that's left in revolt in that like second dedication to the king i mean because between when the book was written and the 20 years later when he writes that second dedication like the a lot of the hopes of what people you know the sort of whatever you want to call them as a broad spectrum from nationalist to like hardcore leftist political forces in the country had hoped would be the future of the country once colonialism ended and it turned out to be quite the opposite from their expectations right um so you know I, I, one assumes that you read this as a fairly sarcastic to Hassantani and the other brave leaders of the Arab world. Oh, um, totally, I think. <laughs> um, so he continued to live in, in France and to see himself or to describe himself not as a Moroccan or a Moroccan French writer or a Francophone writer, but simply, you know, as a writer who wrote in French. And he, although he did continue to write, I think exclusively about um, Morocco, Moroccan themes, um, mostly novels set in in Morocco. He even had um, some historical Andalusian and pre-Islamic historical novels. And then, uh, very interestingly, from 1981 to 2004, had this long series of Inspector Ali uh, novels, 
which I haven't read any of, but now I really am kind of desperate to get Inspector Ali and the CIA, despite its, or um, maybe even because of its very mixed reviews on online. I've, uh, I think I've read one of them. I mean, they're, they're good and they're kind of, um, the humor, which is there from the beginning in his earliest work is, is there throughout. And some of the cynicism, there is not the rage and, and stylistically they're not as experimental. Uh, they're much, they're more within the genre, I would say in terms of how they're written. This is my memory. I think of having read one I would like to reread I tried to read it and I think at the time my French was maybe not strong enough and also I mean his style is demanding I would like to read the book he wrote right after this one about uh, Moroccan laborers in France Les Boucs the mm. I don't know how it's been translated I mean I think I think it means the goats but also in the sense maybe of the scapegoats um, the title, but it's about, it's supposed to be another scathing work about, he, I think one of the first works ever written, uh, about migrant labor from a former colony in France. Right. Um, and I think, which again yeah. is something he would have observed. I think the, the thing that you touch on also is that I think the, the energy of this book and what really makes it uh, worth reissuing and rereading is the anger, is the intensely powerful, illuminating force of the central character. And one also then assumes the writer's anger. Right. I mean, so the introduction, which is by Adam Schatz, mentions the the violence of style and I think what he calls the commitment to sacrilege. That the, mm. that the narrator slash author shows. And so the, the, the story is kind of takes place over the course of a, of a few days. And then I think we jump forward a week, but it takes place towards the end of Ramadan. Uh, uh, I don't know if it specifies the year. I think we're in the, they talk about the war. So we're in the 40s. Um, yeah, I, I think we must be in the middle of World War II. In the middle of World War II, towards the end of Ramadan, um, and and it's, you know, this young man who there's sort of a number of crises are happening within his family, but the big crisis is uh, this sort of looming, ongoing conflict between him and his father uh, and and his desire to somehow extricate himself from the grasp and power of his father, who is this incredibly memorable kind of monstrous father figure in the story. Um, and uh, Monstrous and yet, and, and and yet then, I find him charming as well. I mean, monstrous and yet not, okay, charming is the wrong word. Monstrous and yet sort of electric in that way. Yeah, I think over the course of the novel, too, he complicates the figure of the father because in the end of the book, by the end of the book, we get the point of view of the father. In the beginning, we only see him from the outside, from the point of view of this like incredibly resentful son. And by the end, mm. they do have, you do get the father's voice and hear from him. And you also, there's a lot of revelations about him. Um, like he is not what he at first seems in some respects. Uh but but that is the sort of central knot of the book is this like 
fight for power between the son and the father and the son who has been sent by a very seemingly traditional father to be educated in French schools to prepare him for like the future to make him, you know, be able to take over the family business and navigate what's coming and who has through that education kind of acquired this desire to emancipate himself and to revolt uh, and this and acquired this voice, this critical, this voice that's also full of like citations of, you know, European literature and philosophy and so on. And that is incredibly critical of his surroundings. I mean, that's when we talk about the, the language, like I find this novel still shocking now. Some of the passages, some of the things that are described, it is so graphic and, um, it really shoves your face in things, right? I mean, there's depictions of like sexual violence, of just regular violence, of abuse of animals, of children. Of I mean, it is, you know, he he makes sure you can't look away, right? And and generally always in kind of a a a dark, it, it not in not in there's never a breathless description. It's never or, or and it's never a description where we we are shocked together. It's always an angry, uh, brightly seen description of, uh, a, 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 you know, and also a jaded uh, voice as well about, you yeah. know, passages of, of sexual predator, you know, predators against children. It's, it's as if we're, we're kind of reading this as if, as if we already know this, you know, he's, he's speaking to the, to us as if. This is something we all know. Well, or something he wants to make sure we can't pretend not to know. I, I, I don't know if I didn't. I'm not sure if I read it as like as something we all know. Because why would he make such? He's like he's such a point of telling you. And there are scenes again and again in the novel in which to his father or to other like older male authority figures, he makes a point of saying things that they don't want to hear and that are quote-unquote inappropriate I mean he he goes on these sort of he tells everybody things they don't want to hear he like insults everybody or the conventions or the proprieties all the time while like making sure that you're hyper aware of poverty of violence of you know uh the status of his mother he you know he's constantly sort of between sympathy and almost disgust at her at the submission that she's been ground into right I, I didn't feel very much sympathy. I think a, a little bit of sympathy and a lot of anger with her as well. Why aren't you revolting? But I guess when I say uh, something that we already know, he's not bringing people, bringing the reader or into it or speaking to someone as if they're a tourist, as if they don't know about this already, as if they're a foreigner. He he is confronting you with it, but this is a confrontation with something the you know you really already know that this poverty is here you really already know that this sexual abuse is here you have mm. just been trying to look away from it i mean of, of course because my frame of reference for literature is so egyptian when i first read this i thought of a couple parallels to egyptian literature one of course in the father figure you think of si Syed, the father figure in nagib mahfouz's trilogy who is also right. like a complete despot and a complete hypocrite, right? Because he enforces all of these like 
you know, very strict codes of behavior on his family. And then it turns out that he's out, you know, getting high and hanging out with <laughs> singers and his friends every night. And similarly to the father in this novel, who also turns out to not at all be as sort of morally upright as he pretends to be. Right. Although somehow around Sisayed, I could breathe. I know. Uh, you know, I, I, was a, I was afraid of him. He's a despot. He's a patriarch. He's an autocrat. But I could at least manage to take in a breath, you know, turn, share a joke with somebody maybe. But in this book, um, the sort of his gaze is fixed on you constantly. He is such a terrifying figure. Well, so, he, and the boy refers to him as uh, le seigneur, the lord. So there's really like an explicit conflict. Like he is all authority, religious authority, like patriarchal authority. Um, I mean, there's an opening scene, though, in the trilogy where, like, they all come to dinner and it's that same thing of they have to sit against the wall, like, silent, without speaking, and they're super intimidated by their father. But that character... Right, but he doesn't kill anybody. Right, no, and that character evolves over time, and I agree that the gaze on him is much more sympathetic uh, that he's portrayed as a sort of, you know, contradictory uh, figure of masculinity, like, but but not not at all an unsympathetic one. Uh, whereas this father is is much more unsympathetic. But that to me is one of the differences between this book and a lot of Egyptian literature written at the same period that investigates the same ideas, right? Of this generation that's sort of caught between, like, really traditional norms and a new Western education that has changed things. And also they know that their society is about to undergo big change. It's the end of colonialism is coming. Um, you know, everything's being renegotiated. But in Egyptian literature, I mean, for example, again, in Mahfouz, like, even though these sweeping changes are taking place, the tone is not so harsh the tone is not right, so angry. Right. Like, uh, there's just an incredible harshness to this to yeah. this book. Well, uh, okay, so I also was fr- framing it between Egyptian literature and uh, and against and, and thinking about it in that way. But I was also thinking that in Egyptian literature also, the sort of gaze and investment and belief is always in, in a future Egypt. Uh, at this period, I I can't think of characters, narrators who were in the the whole novel is escape. I I really felt that this you know this throughout this Duris is is leaving. He's he's you know he there are things he loves about about Morocco. There are things things that he connects to that maybe he, he will never connect to in an, another way again. But he's not. I don't get the sense that he's that there's any s- attempt to build Morocco. He's not staying there to engage and to make a new Morocco himself. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if you compare him to the figure of the the younger intellectual son in the in the Mafuz novel in the trilogy who who stays and teaches and works and can't quite find a place for himself, ends up sort of alienated, ends up less happy than the older generation. Right, he ends up depressed and and failing, but 
but for having tried. And there's just no question whatsoever of him going anywhere, it seems like. I mean, right. all of those characters are so incredibly attached to their family and their neighborhood. Uh, there, that the, 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 it never comes up, actually, immigration. I don't think for any of them as a... I mean, the other book, Egyptian book, that there's a parallel to in this is Beer in the Snooker Club. Right, and I was just going to mention that as well, because he also, he does leave, and part of the novel is in England, but he also comes back, and it is about baking the cake, you know, it is about making a different Egypt. Yeah, I mean, so for anyone who's unfamiliar with 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 beer in the snooker club, I mean, this is a novel that we both love very much, and I think is is really a a, a cornerstone for me. I think of modern Egyptian literature, and uh, uh, by Wagi Khali, and again, it has a, it has one of these in between narrators, right? Uh, who is is a young man who's had an English education, and he's in Nasserist Egypt, and he's sort of a leftist, and he has, there's no clear place or role for him to play, which is something that he's quite self-conscious of. Um, and Right, he's completely, because of his, in part because of his education and the things that he reads, and the languages that he he communicates in, he has become entirely separated. He doesn't, he no longer speaks in the same vernacular as, uh, you know, as ordinary people selling lettuce on the street. Or, or so he feels. Or I so mean, he feels, so, right. Yeah, so he thinks. I mean, and and but again, the tone of that book is so entirely different. So it's just, again, it's, it's, it's melancholy sometimes, but it's often very funny and it's very light on, on, on a serious, on a serious matter. It's very light. Um, whereas, and the Shaibi book, I do find funny at times. He does have a sense of humor, but it is not light. It's but it's like, always, yeah, it's always in a very intense sense of humor. It's like being punched in the face on every page. Right. <laughs> Being yeah, it's being punched in the face. Occasionally, told a joke while you're being punched in the face. Ah, that's funny, but ow. Yeah. So I, I can definitely, you know, I I relate. I I relate to this. It okay. It probably did come out like a bomb. <laughs> it, it, certainly to to those who read it. Although I I think it's you know always wonderful to think of a book hitting a community so explosively that that it mattered that much. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting what you said about the reactions. I mean, um, to me, it is clearly not an apology for colonialism, um, but it, I think... No, yeah, I think you'd have to read it pretty superficially, but apparently some people did. Well, I guess you can make make whatever you want out of, I mean, you can always interpret things in, in a way that suits you. Um, but, uh, but it is a kind of general indict. It's like an indictment of everyone. <laughs> I feel like of all sides, uh, it, from this, from this, from this young person's point of view. Absolutely. I felt he was trapped in between so many different patriarchal forces and then, and then disappointment at those forces such as his mother, who could have been something else, he felt, but, but weren't. Yeah. Well, th listen, there's another passage I was thinking about reading um, mm. 
that maybe speaks a bit to this, uh, shall I? It's about when he goes back to Fez with his mother. Yes. So I'll when just... things are still not so bad. Right. So, yeah. So this is about uh, a quarter into the book, and he has been sent <clears throat> to run an errand basically in Fez, which is the town that his family hails from, great medieval uh city of Morocco. Um, this is a slightly long passage, but I think it's worth reading in its entirety. Um, so he's back in Fez and he says, I don't like this city. It is my past and I don't like my past. I have grown and evolved. Fez is dried up. That's all. All the same, I know that as I move into it, it grasps me and makes an entity an entity of me, quanta, brick among bricks, lizard, dust, without my having to be conscious of it. Is it not the city of lords? A house, no matter what boutique, the corner of an alley, is a brutal spewing forth towards matter. It is not because Fez is time-worn or because the appurtenances of the machine age are barely perceptible here, but because this city gives off, if I dare say so, an odor of sanctity that pervades the buildings, the mentality of the people, and the atmosphere, a sanctity that has nothing to do with that of monasteries or pilgrimage spots, but made out of respect, out of a passivity that one could have for a 2,000-year-old hermitage." I know how it awakens, how it passes its, its days, how it falls asleep. It has an odor, a color, a tone, all of its own. Even those who exile themselves from it keep these characteristics. Wasn't the Lord born here? Moroccan cities know the monotonous chant of beggars, above all at nightfall. At Fez, the beggars mill around. Their lamentations, however, are not the positive and demanding ones that they are in Casablanca. Those who ask for a piece of bread or a bowl of soup do so vaguely, and the names of the lord or of the saint of the town add a note of gentleness and sadness to their song. The dawn chant is low-toned. Their throats, like the houses, are half asleep. Courtesy is equally a characteristic of the poor, because at that early hour the only people who are up are those who go to work in the gardens of the suburbs, the children who are getting dressed to go to the Quranic school, and the servants." Artisans and owners of small businesses get up around nine to ten o'clock, the well-to-do of the middle classes around noon. The muezzins of numerous mosques don't succeed in drowning out the modulated calls of Mule Idris and of the Theological University of Karawayin. The cocks in the balconies crow, the ring doves coo, the beggars weep softly, the donkeys hammer the stone torn from the earth, the fountains murmur, and here and there, at almost every street corner, ovens glow red in the black streets. At this hour, the city smells of earth, sprinkled with the pungency of horse manure. I mean, I could keep on reading. I really enjoy this passage and his descriptions of the city, but I'll stop there. Yeah, it's funny because I think the, for a book that's just so decidedly anti-romantic and refuses to kind of... Uh, gloss over or or turn into some kind of postcard Morocco in a way. He does have these intense moments of beautiful love. Well, he makes sure to put the horse manure in there, right? Like he's <laughs> right. not gonna. And in fact, the next passage he talks about how the perfume of poverty 
pervades the city. And it's another beautiful, Mm. long description of... But it's true that you feel a lot, actually, although he says he starts out by saying, I don't like the city, then the entire following pages seem to kind of contradict that because there's, there's a sort of knowledge and detail and attention to the city that seems incompatible with dislike. Um, and, and the reason I, I sort of really like this passage and the whole scene is he goes to Fez. It's the end of Ramadan. It's the night of power. Um, he goes to run this errand for his father. He meets this famous um, religious preacher, uh, insults him, and then goes <laughs> goes to the mosque and 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 ha- there's this almost e- e- incredible ecstatic scene of him going through the very crowded streets of the city, you know, with all the beggars, with, with young women skipping rope, with people sort of almost like having a, 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 this this incredibly powerful communal experience, and then goes to the mosque and listens to this uh, sermon, which again kind of, you know, uh, reverberates through the crowd. Um, And he talks about this term that he uses several times throughout the book. He talks about the thin line, that he feels the thin line. And I, at first, could not remember and understand what he meant by that. And at this point, he explains it. And it's like the line across which he talks about the line across which he stops being at all black and becomes completely white, but it's the line across which his identity would change and he would really be, I guess, westernized completely. Mm. But the scene is actually one in which you, it gives voice actually to the attachment and the community and the identity and the joy of being part of this city and, and also being part of a, of, a, of a crowd of praying Muslims in a mosque in the city that your family's from. Um, so I find it very interesting. Yeah, I think he. I think he's all there. There's there's kind of a um, this root of love. I think in inside most of the book, like his younger brother Hamid, I always felt such intensity of of affection. So in this, in one of the in the, one of the opening scenes, the children are all lined up. And the father is staring at them and they're absolutely, you know, they are not even breathing. And there's like a moment at which he looks at this youngest brother who is nine, but is skinnier and looks even younger than that. And there is an intensity of affection that he feels for his brother in this family system that is otherwise um, very competitive, angry, everybody is just kind of scrabbling to stay alive through it. Yeah. So, you know, as much as he rejects his family, there's also ways in which he clings to his family as well. And of course, describing his father, spending this entire book on his father is also um, a mode of attention and, and, and affection. And I think also because because overall the book is so unsentimental that when there are the moments of real emotion, they're very powerful. I mean, because they're because they're very much in tension with with this overall uh, completely unsentimental, completely sort of like cold and angry um, approach, um, and. Uh, I just want to say one more thing about the 
these these scenes where a sort of these scenes of where these communal scenes, these very beautiful sort of like panoramas where you see like everybody in a neighborhood or everybody in a mosque mm. sort of engage in something together. So it reminded me of yet another book that I think it reminded me of Season of Migration to the North and mm. specifically the scene where they stop in the desert. There's like a caravan and they stop in the desert. It's a big group and they eat and they and they they pray and they eat and they spend the night out in the desert. And again, it's this kind of very to me always like very beautiful, very moving description of of a kind of grace that's felt in a in a communal setting of everybody sort of engaged together and and playing certain roles. These two scenes reminded me of each other a lot. And that of course is yet another book about being torn between right. different identities in different places. Right. Written approximately at the same time, I think. I mean more more or less, yeah. Right. Um you in fact you could do a whole I'm sure it has been done, but you could conceive a whole, you know, module or series of some kind just about these stories, right? Of being sort of pulled in two directions. Um, right. And the different sort of narrative mechanisms from this intense anger to a disaffected sort of uh, a black irony to... Um, to the big family cycle in Mafuz that ends in, I don't know, this, uh, again, a kind of disaffected alienation. Yeah, and this, there's, a, there's a sadness to it, but also a resilience in Mafuz. I don't feel like the family is broken in Mafuz no, by the end right, of it. Right. Where this family, the one that Shaibi uh, dramatizes, is broken. It's decimated, and all the relationships are turned upside down. And two two members are dead, and one is on his way out of the country by the end of it. Right, and it 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 feels there's a sense of triumph. You know, he he is getting out of there. He has saved himself, but yes, everything has been utterly blown up behind him. Yeah, I just wanted to say something about overall the the translation. Um, so I think uh, this translation um, from 1990. Uh, of the of this uh, reissued by Hugh Harder, it 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 reads fairly well, but I have to say, I mean, it's a it's a very difficult text to translate, obviously, and in some places, I ended up really being pushed back to read the French original because I couldn't sometimes understand, uh, or, or it didn't quite make sense to me in the English version, and 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 when I and then I started reading them side by side, and I had quite a few uh, questions. Um, and you know, obviously, there's a huge amount of leeway that you can have in translation, but I think there are a few instances in which both, for some reasons, every once in a while, there's been a few cuts, so like whole sentences have been removed. Um, mm. I'm not sure why, if it's just for length. And then also there's instances of actual, I think, mistakes uh, here and there in sometimes in the construction and the the rendering of pronouns. 
So, you know, because in French, pronouns are gendered and these are all like very long run on sentences a lot of the time. And, and, and one of the ways that the structure holds together is by being, you know, by what a pronoun is referring to previously. I think there's cases in which that kind of gets lost so that the mm -hmm. English language sentence doesn't quite have the same structure. I mean, even though he, he actually has a sentence where he just throws nouns in, like, but but they do grammatically make sense in French. It is a it is a really powerful, very strong piece of writing in French. It, I mean, being so experimental and yet having such a mastery of the language. Um, and then there's actually like a few. I mean, in the passage that I read before, like there's a, just a mistake where something that should be the chant of beggars has been rendered as the change of beggars. So that's I think just mm. not right or or. You know, instead of saying a 2,000-year-old hermit, like the person, it says hermitage. I'm not sure why. I think there's actually some 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 mistakes in and and some instances in which an already very like hard to follow text is made a little bit harder to follow by the fact that the actual construction of the sentences. Certain key turning points have not been gotten quite right. That said, I think overall there's a lot of passages that read quite beautifully. Like you still get the, the 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 the, the, the you know the overall effect, don't you think? Right. Yeah. Uh, I absolutely. I mean, I really enjoyed. I did find the strangest decision was the brother's name. Yes. Which was hard not to read as Camel. So because he was originally, because the book was originally written in French, and so you would render the Arabic name Kamel with C-A-M-E-L. When they translate into English, they continue with that French spelling, which is a bit jarring in English. Like, obviously, if they put a K, it would, it would, it would just read better. Because you think it's a nickname at first. Or right, something. exactly. Well, that's really what I thought for a long time until I realized, no, his name is just Kamel. Yeah, yeah. I think... Uh, um, there's, there's some, there's, I have quibbles. And then of course, when you start getting into a text and start reading it page against page, the quibbles multiply. Like that's just, that's just something that happens, but this is more than a question of taste. I think there are, there are a few, a few things that, uh, that could be really improved upon, but I think the yeah, overall I, effect I, of the book is there. One of the things I just wonder about is because also uh, Taufiq al-Hakim's Return of the Spirit was recently reissued as part of the Penguin Classics series, and they did simply just use uh, William Hutchins' earlier translation. Um, I, I'm sure, you know, reading over it, copy editing it before they, they put it out, but rather than engaging a new translation. And maybe maybe that doesn't even happen that much in other languages. And I'm just uh, sort of imagining because Dostoevsky gets, you know, six translations of this of, of a novel, that it happens often. But it just seems like for a classic reissue that a retranslation, not you know, not to disparage even a previous one, but just, you know, that it's a beautiful thing. I'm just curious I mean, why it doesn't happen. I, obviously, there's a financial issue. I'm sure there's that. and uh, But obviously, it's a text that I think would be, a, I mean, a challenge, but in a very exciting way for any translator to engage with. 
um, because it has because it, it it has so much motion, uh, so much complexity, and so much impact in like every paragraph. Yeah, right. So it'd be a wonderful thing to for somebody to try afresh. And yeah, I, I would love to yeah. read them against each other, or read read a new translation. Yeah. Well, but so in the meantime, though, the the version that... <laughs> no, but I mean, because this is a question about this is, I don't know um, how they make the decisions about, uh, uh, you know, republishing books that are part of their catalog. But I think, you know, the question that's interesting uh, to us I mean, we both, when they told us this was coming out, we're like, yes, yes, please send us a copy because it's, you know, we immediately wanted to like talk about it and to reread it. And I think the question is, you know, what does this book uh, do for us now or mean to us now? I mean, it's 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 been over half a century uh, since it was published. Um, and yet uh, it was... Uh, And yet it's a very powerful experience, I think, still, personally. Yeah, me too. And I think it's an interesting question because because every single thing I read about it said when it was originally released, it hit like a bomb. And I think that this was something that Dries Schreiber understood that he was doing. In in another interview that I read with him, he he talked about how he, this was in 1992, he talked about he'd finished another book about the Prophet Muhammad, and he said, um, it, it could be a bomb, this could be another bomb, and I don't know if I want to publish it, you know. Um, and uh, it ended up, I think, not being quite the same bomb that maybe he imagined it would be. Um, but when, as we reread this book, obviously it comes into a different uh, historical moment and social setting and context where Morocco is not currently fighting an anti-colonial war against, or not fighting a war, but, you know, you know, extricating itself from colonial France. Um, uh, there have been many other books now written in, in this kind of uh, direct uh, style describing some of the same things. So the, it doesn't, it doesn't have that impact of, of, um, of, you know, of upending things, I think. And yet I think there are so many things it continues to speak to. Um, patriarchies still exist. Autocracies still exist. Um, difficult families still exist. And this feeling of being a total outsider, I think is, is something that is still extremely compelling and just the force of the of the anger of this book can kind of propel you along like a fast moving river. Yeah, I'm going to I mean, I'm going to slightly disagree with you on how um non-revolutionary this book feels now because it's sort of uh be- because when I read it, I was shocked. Like the first time I read this book, sorry, I have a cold, so my voice is is is, is ending. But um, <laughs> I was really like struck, and sh- I had never read something like it before. 
Um, I mean, f- f- and and certainly not f- from Morocco and and from North Africa. Like I think it still carries a charge, and 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 part of that is the language, um, and this kind of violent truth telling that goes on throughout. I also think that that position where you are as as someone in a at his time colonized or formerly colonized country sort of tearing apart everything that is wrong or um quote unquote backwards uh about your society and your culture is still like an incredibly fraught position to be in. It still also carries this big charge of like, you know, why are you doing this? What do you want to accomplish through this? Uh, what's your what's your what's your point? You know, um, and I don't know. I I was. Uh, I I I still I wasn't like oh yes you know I I knew all these things already or this this uh, this seems uh, this more or less makes sense to me I was more like wow <laughs> when I first read it um, uh, I can't believe he's saying that like still you know um, mm. and and as much as things have changed as much as things have obviously very very much changed this debate over for example tradition versus modernity is still very much the terms on which Moroccan politics and society continue to be discussed. Like this colonial framework of like, you get to have tradition, we get to have modernity, you know, and we're going to allocate a balance between these two elements in our colonial project that is the discourse that continues to be used as the predominant political discourse in Morocco, yeah, I would say, to right. this day. Right. No, I did. I actually, I found that frustrating in the book. I mean, not frustrating in the sense of how the book was constructed, but frustrating in how the characters discussed, you know, uh, what what was tradition and what was modernity in much the same way I'm frustrated generally um, by the, by this concept that there is a sort of a, yes, a backwards traditionalism and a forwards modernity as if those are really two, you know, separate things and not two different traditions or an an entirely different way of seeing it. Uh, I mean, yeah, the book definitely still has a charge, but I just, there's certain things like that religious, um, men are hypocritical. Uh, yeah, I, I, I get that. Um, uh, there is another Egyptian book that it reminds me yeah, of. Yeah, the discussion of the status of women doesn't perhaps seem as right. shocking either. Um, there's uh, there's some things I think that it's true as sort of have been discussed and continue to be discussed so widely um, that they're not, they don't maybe have the same revelatory quality or shocking quality that they had originally. But sorry, you were saying there's another... Oh, I was just saying um, (laughs) there's a 17th century Egyptian book um, uh, that it it also reminds me of. um, uh, It's it's not a a novel, of course, because there there was just not the uh, idea of writing a novel uh, at that time in 
in in Shirbin in in Egypt, but it, it but it's also this very kind of vulgar description of the of the hypocrisies of religious men, and it, but it's interesting to me to see in such a different setting and linguistic and and in a different language, um, French, because I, I think. One of the interesting things about the past in this novel is that it is it is reconstructed in French, right? He is cut off from the Arabic texts of of past Moroccos, and he is reconstructing his past in in a French language. Obviously, you know, speaking in 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 Darija in his sort of daily life, but but in his schooling, in his understanding of history, in his in his readings, constructing his past in French. Which also brings you to the title, to the absolutely brilliant title of this novel, because it, it, it's the passé simple in French, you know, both means a simple past, but it's also a verb tense, a very literary verb tense that's not really used in daily life. And that implies like finality to the action that's taken place. And his, you know, one of the things that he's playing on a lot is like whether this kind of what 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 really is the past? Like what what is the real tradition? Like what reality does it even have? And then what is its effect on the present and can one ever be free of it? Um, I think there's a very interesting way in which, you know, in the course of the story, his father, who's supposed to kind of represent the weight of this uh, immobile, intransigent tradition, turns out to be in complete collusion with the colonial authorities for his business and so on and so forth. And so the past and, and also turns out to not be what he seems. Right. So there, there's this, there's this idea that the, there's something poisonous about the past, but also something fake. Absolutely. And, and it, I realized that the novel is constructing him as being in collusion, but I also had some sympathy for him. Like he was, he was making his living in the situation that he was, that he was in. Oh, I don't think right. it's, and I think it's a sophisticated take. It's not sort of like, oh, and my father is, is bad because he collaborates with the colonialists. This is a world in which everybody is compromised in one way or another. It's more that that dichotomy between colonial right. authority right. and so-called in traditional Islamic nationalist authority is like, is like phony, which I think is, is is accurate, is an accurate reading, like that that dichotomy also is not as clear cut as as national narratives on either side would make it out to be, that it's constructed. Right. And that there's always been an interweaving and a relationship also between um, your, I mean, not always, maybe, I don't know, but uh, for hundreds of years long before the French protectorate, a relationship between uh, France, Spain, Morocco, um, that, that it didn't just sort of pop up one day, um, that these are forces and that it in, continues. in context. Yes, and that it goes on. That the simple past is never, neither simply the past nor in the past, <laughs> nor frozen. Nor simple. In any way. 
Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's why I think the book continues to like really raise a lot of interesting questions because it's something that people are still very much grappling with is how to understand one one's history and how to understand this inc- this break in one's history, this turn in one's history that colonialism introduced. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly the the linguistic one for sort of creating like a full stop in the middle that's not really a full stop. Um, So I just wanted to thank you so much for discussing this book with me that I really um, enjoyed and I read actually twice and I still am am grappling with it. Yeah, me too. Um, Same here. Uh, It's a a book that you can uh, engage with again and again. Um, Mm. All right, so it was great talking to you as usual. Yes, lovely talking to you. And uh, and I hope your cold gets better. Thanks, thanks. I am like running out of uh, <laughs> running out of voice today. Um, no, it, it is it is already getting better. Thanks. Um, and uh, we'll be back soon. Goodbye, everyone. All right, bye. 